Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying, raising, and investing capital for MedTech companies. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by McDonald Hopkins. Building MedTech companies the right way based on great technology is not a one-size-fits-all endeavor. McDonald Hopkins Law Firm provides customized and proactive strategies that align clients' valuable MedTech technology with their business goals. This, in turn, builds those clients into successful, thriving companies with strong experience and depth in the startup, venture capital, intellectual property, and fundraising arenas. McDonald Hopkins can be an important part of your team team to help you develop the med tech business that you envision. While we're talking about McDonald Hopkins, they've been so gracious to sponsor both of our events we have coming up this year. Our Midwest Showcase on August 30th in Cleveland, Ohio, and our Startup Symposium in Houston, Texas, October 25th and 26th. More information on both events are on our website and if you use the code PM20 or PM20 you'll get 20% off. In this episode our guest Shannon Host at Agilist Consulting and I discuss her background in medtech, human factors testing for software as a medical device and digital health, cognitive systems engineering, IEC 62366 and the FDA guidance document on human factors and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Shannon Post. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Okay, Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. Yeah. So Shannon, um, a introduction into uh, uh, who you are, your background uh, in the med tech space, and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Sounds good. Uh, so um, I'm going to go in the way back machine, um, yeah. <laughs> back to the uh, mid 90s, actually. Okay. Um, started working in med tech as a mechanical engineer um, and was working on, actually, it was uh, auto injectors and... Um, was doing evaluations on the products, design, material selection, and then some sustaining engineering. Started getting product failures, couldn't understand parts were fracturing, couldn't understand why they were. Turns out people were lubricating their devices with butter and uh, motor oil. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, plastics and oils don't get along and embrittled and it fractured. So um, at that point, I kind of took a step back and said, okay, how do I write requirements? How do I do risk management? Um, when people could do anything with their products. Mm -hmm. And um, from there, I was trying to explore that, and I ended up discovering um, uh, cognitive systems engineering. And so it's uh, it's the study of uh, user interface design, uh, so the systems engineering side, and uh, cognitive psychology. And Okay, where where did you do that at? At Ohio State. 
Okay. So I mean, I was, how many programs are out there for that? Uh, there's more now. There weren't many okay. then. Okay. Very <laughs> cool. That. There was probably yeah. two or three maybe back then. Wow. Um, so, so I got lucky because I was working at Battelle. Um, and I started oh, to yeah. walk over on Ohio State campus and take some classes and discovered the program. And so, yeah. um, so continued taking classes. I ended up taking probably twice as many as I actually needed to, but it wasn't about the degree. <laughs> it was about mm-hmm. the learning um, and applying that to the work that I was doing at Battelle at the time. Super um, cool. So, yeah. And so, so that was all med device combination products space. Yep. And, yep. um, and so then I kind of took my tour on the road and I went out to uh, Intel and okay. they, at Intel, they had a digital health group. They were spinning up um, home health technologies and assistive technologies. And so helping them build out um, not only from the human factors aspect, but also kind of the, just the design controls aspect of um, uh, how do you take a product and get it to the market in this regulated space. Okay. Um, from there, I uh, hopped over to Stryker in Michigan, so oh, in yeah. Kalamazoo. Mm-hmm. And um, at Stryker, I, I was within Instruments and uh, worked to revamp the product development process, um, just to try to uh, you know drive efficiencies and effectiveness in that process, and uh, introduce human factors <laughs> and build that in as well. Um, and uh, during that time, it was actually back during uh, Intel, I started working on more national committees. So standards committees and then working with the FDA um, from their, you know, their live sessions that they hold, um, participating in those. And so while I was at Stryker, I got the call to join the FDA. Uh, and so packed everyone up again and we moved out to Maryland <laughs> and um ran the human factors team at CDRH uh, there. So Ron, um, Ron called me out and then promptly announced he was retiring. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so what, what year is this? Uh, that was 2015 or 2014 into 15, right, okay. right around there. Um, so, uh, so worked with that team and, um, then we, we were able to get the guidance published in 2016. Yeah. Okay. Um, for usability engineering or human factors. And uh, right around that same time, the international committee, we published the 62366-1-2015. It was in uh, December of that year uh, that that came out. So this came out right around the same time within a month of each other um, and really laid the groundwork for where we're at today in human factors. Those those two documents kind of codified um, the process that we've been talking about. That mm-hmm. unfortunately, prior to that, really didn't have the teeth because it hadn't been documented, right? Right. People could see it, and you could see why you would want to do it, but nobody had to do it, so it was intermittent. Yep. Um, so so worked in, and led that team, and worked over with Demepa as well in combination products, and then um, in 2019 got called back into the industry. Um, <laughs> so worked with Illumina, yeah, and IVD. And uh, and then enable injections in Cincinnati. Um, yeah. Working there on uh, some of the the human factors uh, evolutions of, of that product, making it uh, even more uh, user focused. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, and then I decided to move into consulting. <laughs> so, which I was kind of doing from company to company, but uh, yeah. Uh, so now um, I'm the president at Agilis. 
and now we're Agilist by Kymanox, so we're now okay. part of a, a larger organization. And um, Agilist's focus is on human factors and instructional material design, okay. instructional systems design. Um, that's our pure focus, and then now we're part of Kymanox, which is a, a much larger a life science service provider. Okay. All right, mm -hmm. very good. So you're still focused on human factors. Yes. Yeah, the agile okay. team is. Yep. <clears throat> okay. So so this is what I love about uh, having guests on is is our underlying topic today is human factors. Um, but when you give your background, so many things pop up within there that it, that's really what leads our discussion for the rest of today. So <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I want to start with um, the relationship between the cognitive systems engineering and human factors. It just seems like that's a mm -hmm. pretty direct relationship there. Um, can you can you maybe just dive a little bit deeper into to what that is? I mean, it sounds like Ohio State might have had one of the first programs, or at least there wasn't a ton of them. Um, yeah, so, so how's that different than, if I'm a biomedical engineer, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and now I'm studying cognitive systems engineering, I mean, just kind of walk me through like how's that different how'd that prepare you for human factors it's just it's yeah. really interesting to me yeah sure yeah it's um the thing i like about human factors is everybody has a different journey into it and <laughs> we come from uh such a diverse group of backgrounds so you bring in the biomedical you bring in the um the education that's the instructional system design that comes from more of an educational background mm -hmm. um the cognitive systems, the cognitive psychology, understanding how people think and act and make decisions um, to the um, the physical, the biomechanics, the ergonomics, right? All of those different backgrounds kind of come together to understand how people and technology work together. Um, so my direction is from that cognitive systems direction. So uh, again, it's really understanding how how people are making decisions. So so in that program, you study a lot of accidents. It's kind of yeah, kind of morbid, but <laughs> you study a lot of things that go wrong and learn as much as you can from them to prevent them from yeah. happening in the future. Yeah. Um, but but the basic tenet is people behave rationally in the moment, right? So you mm -hmm. look at these accidents, you look at Three Mile Island, you know some of the old you know the, the oh, older yeah. classic disaster type accidents, um, and you look at what went wrong and what decisions people made with the information they had at that moment and the pressures they were under that decision made sense. Mm -hmm. When you look at it in the back, you're like, oh no, that was probably the wrong thing to do, but given the information they had at the time. So what it, what cognitive systems does from the human factors medical device perspective is, uh, is say it's basically, okay, let's understand what those situations our users are in, what decisions are they needing to make and go through and, and think what could go wrong and what do I need to evaluate? How am I supporting those decisions at that moment in time? Right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a very systematic way to walk through and think about how people are using the product. Um, but I think that's an advantage because when it's systematic, I can, I can act on it, right? I can use yeah. it to make decisions and drive where I'm focusing. So, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's funny you bring up the three mile Island thing as well. You know, that's, that's something that um, we just watched a special on that on Netflix. There was like a three or four part series on it. You know, mm -hmm. that was really interesting. There, there is one that pertains to the, and I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's called the bleeding edge. Yes. It's on, it's on Netflix as well. Yep. Right. I mean, that situation with the, um, uh, it's an alternative form of, uh, 
um, <clears throat> pregnancy prevention uh, or birth control, um, mm. IUDs or yeah. something like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah you and know. the placement of those. Yeah, uh, right. And that's that's a direct human factors piece of that, right? So that company assumed that you know you would only ever use one, right? Uh, and then they found women with five or six put in there because physicians didn't feel if they, you know, got it in the right spot or not. And yeah. that's a, you know, they kind of go in off label. It's, it's just really interesting. Yeah. Um, you see that uh, in, in um, a classic kind of medication error is on uh, some of the on body patches. Yeah. Um, where they'll, yeah. the this historic example is, you know, on the, the product labeling, they show where you can apply the patch. You can put it on your thigh, you can put it on your back put it on your arms and so what was happening was people were putting it on their thigh their back and their arms and not <laughs> and or getting an overdose yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah so. yeah yeah really interesting um okay i appreciate that um okay so so the human factors there's an fda guidance document in 2016 that's written mm -hmm. um and then there's also the standard what is the standard again uh, the standard is IEC 62366. There's a dash one that's the normative, and the dash two is informative. Okay. Um, and so those two documents are really like the, it's, I mean, that's like the gold standard for how to think about human factors. Um, because up until that point, right, the FDA didn't make human factors mandatory, but now technically, I mean, isn't human factors a mandatory? Um, piece of the FDA approval process or clearance process? It, it is. Um, so, yeah, prior to that point, the FDA had some draft guidances out. They had been talking about it for quite a while. Okay. Uh, somewhere around 2010, um, that team, the Ron K and team, moved into the Office of Device Evaluation, meaning they were now part of the pre-review process mm -hmm. and could ask for human factors. But again, it hadn't been, they hadn't issued a full guidance on it or anything so it was it was a bit hit or miss um with the guidance that came out that's where um and it's a risk-based process so if there are tasks that could lead to serious harm that's when they um reserve the right to ask for human factors data ah that makes total sense because this is i mean and and the fda has moved to a risk-based process for a lot of things right i mean mm -hmm. um my background's in biocompatibility so i look at iso okay. 10993 part one and think you know the evolution of that over time pushing to this risk-based approach of we're not saying you have to run all of these sets of tests we're saying you have to evaluate those toxicological endpoints and maybe testing's appropriate maybe it's not so they're doing the same thing exactly then that. on on human factors very yep. cool yep. okay another parallel um, is software um mm -hmm. so you do your software analysis and your software hazard analysis as you're going through uh, that evolution process of software design mm -hmm. um and and you're evaluating that as you go so you're essentially you're designing quality into your software you're designing safety into your software it's the same thing with with um human factors i'm designing use safety into my product it's a process right okay mm -hmm. um and i'm identifying those risks along the way and that's driving what i need to look at and what data i need to have yeah um okay so so but i i do want to touch on uh enable injections eventually and also mm -hmm. are you down in cincinnati then right now i am yeah 
Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if you can see my shirt here. It's not a video podcast, but I'm wearing a Mad Tree uh, shirt, <laughs> nice. which is my, one of my favorite breweries in, in the world. Uh, yeah. It just happens to be in Cincinnati. Um, <laughs> That's a good point. I like so, that. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, we'll get to enable injections. But while we're on the human factors piece, um, can you kind of, you know, We've talked. We've touched on human factors before on the podcast, um, and it's a growing field, and there's a lot more attention now, kind of being placed on it. Um, but like anything, it kind of takes time. Um, talk to me about the difference between, or or maybe let's like hyper focus on digital health and like software as a medical device and that piece and and how that differs from like when I think of human factors for a physical device right so like if I'm looking at like a um uh an EpiPen right some of those considerations on how a human might interact with that that's pretty like straightforward in my head Mm -hmm. um when we get into software and digital health starts to get a little it's a little different now so kind of maybe walk mm-hmm. me through if you can compare and contrast the two and those considerations it'd be helpful yeah yeah so absolutely um so there's a few things on the i'm trying to think where to start so so essentially as i mentioned it's a systematic process so i'm walking mm-hmm. through each point of interaction and i'm understanding okay what information does the person need to notice and perceive from the product what decisions are they making on it? What do they need to understand or know? And then what actions are they taking, right? And so I'm just kind of repeatedly going through that with each step of interaction and understanding what can what can go wrong. Can they miss information that they need or can they misinterpret information and the like? Um, when you're talking a pure medical device, there's a lot of ergonomic interactions, right? Are the, the forces appropriate? Can they actually take action? Can they actually push that button or um fill the syringe or whatever it is they need to do um but when you're talking digital health it's a lot more about information hazards than Mm. um, physical hazards right so so with with you know i'm worried about pinch points and energy delivery and things like that in a classic med device Um, with digital health i'm more worried about what information is that person receiving and can they make the appropriate decisions based off of it right so it, it comes up even more so it's kind of amplified by the AIML type uh, information as well. Yeah. Um, and so, so where does that play in? So let me think about an example. So I won't dive into AIML yet, but first, <laughs> first let's just talk digital health. Let's talk about like a CGM, a continuous yeah. glucose meter. So um, when I was at the FDA, that's when that whole evolution was happening. So it started out as an adjunctive technology. So you had the CGM sensor, that would um, read glucose levels uh, kind of on a continuous basis, right? But it wasn't a replacement for finger sticks, so patients still had to do both. So they were still proving up technologies. Um, it had a standalone um, user interface sensor that you know that you could read the information off of. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it was adjunctive. It wasn't what you were supposed to be supposed to be making your decisions based off of. That was still the the finger stick. Um, as that technology uh, moved and was able to prove. Um, effectiveness, then you can start making decisions off of that. You now had this standalone uh, dedicated user interface you had to make decisions off of. So how were people understanding that information? Did they know what the trending meant and how they were supposed to make decisions based off of that? Um, Did they know what could go wrong? You know, when were they in an air state and things like that? The next evolution was to then 
get rid of that standalone interface and put it on an app on your phone. So now my questions are more about, okay, now I know they can understand the way I'm showing trending, but now that it's on a phone, do they understand the limitations of it being on the phone, right? Do they understand that if they put it in airplane mode and it turns off Bluetooth, that they no longer have communication with their sensor, right? Um, so again, it's, it's thinking about what in that information, what, what do the people need to know, do, act, act on, um, what is changing in that next evolution of the product and how could that lead to someone missing information they need, someone misunderstanding information they need and, and the like. Um, mm. And so a lot of that evolution into say the cell phone interface, what some of those were aspects around the actual cell phone itself, right? Um, and while your device is the software on that device, I still need to make sure that it's functional um, for those users, right? Yep. Um, and so, so it, again, it just it, it's a lot around the the information hazards. IVD is actually the same way, right? So IVD, other than you know the actual assays and lab equipment and the hazards that can happen there, but the actual patient interface is all informational. So, mm -hmm. so as a clinician receives information off of, uh, let's say, we go a little more complex, something you know genomic sequencing, they need to be able to make understand what the data is being presented, understand when that data might be in question, like um, was you know the sample appropriately collected or for a certain patient population, uh, demographic maybe it's not as sensitive as it is for others, right? So all of those things that could go into the reliability of that data, they need to understand. Um, and so how is it presented in a way to support that understanding? Um, so mm -hmm. those are the considerations that, that I'm thinking about from uh, human factors um, perspective around yeah. digital health, IVD. Yep. Um, and so let's layer in AI and machine learning now, mm -hmm. right? How does, how does that, uh, now take it to the next step? Yep. Yeah. So, so that gets to the, that's gets to the next level because if, um, as I mentioned earlier with the, the sample, so the clinician, the IVD sample, the clinician takes the sample, they know the, the patient that they're collecting it for. Um, they can look up, uh, and the prescribing information, any limitations on, on that data, um, they can understand all of that. When you start working with AI ML systems, the question is now that system is making a lot of the decisions or pulling together the information to make, um, you know, clinical support, support decisions or, or the like, um, is the end user aware of all of that went into that? And how do they know when it's operating at the edge of the, of the limits? right? How do they know when maybe there was missing information and the system's making that decision based on what it has, but on incomplete information, right? Um, how is that decision? How is the system making those decisions? Um, all of that can help inform that end user. It's, it's a, it's a transparency issue can help inform mm -hmm. that end user about how much they can rely on that, that output. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so it's it's those questions again that come into um, what is the transparency of this system, or um, you know whether it's a communication of the limitations or a communication of the the factors that were part of the decision, right? So so what do you need to provide to that user so that they can clearly understand the basis for the recommendation mm -hmm. uh, or <clears throat> output? Yeah. So. You know, I guess a, a question is that that comes up is, 
you know, when do you think about human factors? When do you incorporate it? What other areas does it influence, right? Like this is this is just a classic conversation that, that we have at Project MedTech because we're working with so many early stage companies and we're sitting at that 30,000 six foot view of how different things interact with other areas of, of having a successful med tech company, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, people who think of human factors as, oh, well, it's human factors is this. That's a very linear way of thinking. And we always say that that doesn't work, right? Like regulatory reimbursement, human factors, product development, commercialization. If you think of it as like, okay, I go to the next stair now, or I go to the next <laughs> level. It's, it's really, you're, you're setting yourself up for disaster. Agreed. Um, Agreed. <laughs> but so, so you got to figure out where the question isn't when to think about human factors, but where does human factors influence other decisions along the way? Right. And, and so, you know, I'm curious, it's like, the classic one we've been having a lot because we just had Greenlight Guru on the podcast, um, which is an EQMS, mm -hmm. um, is if you like his point was <clears throat> you don't think about compliance, you think about a good quality product, you know, and if you're if you're relying on the FDA to tell you that you should make a good quality product. You got problems, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, he used an example of like uh, going out to a restaurant. He's like, when was the last time you went out to a restaurant and said it, they were compliant? <laughs> you go out right. and say, you know, you had good quality food. And, that, and that's that's what his point was. Unless and they so, aren't, then you notice it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. And so um, with human factors, it's kind of like, you know, when I listen to someone talk to me about human factors, it's, it's funny. It's like I'm never thinking the FDA is mandating this. I'm like, why wouldn't you be thinking about this as you're developing your product? So mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love your take on when you think about it, what it influences, what kind of decisions, you know, it obviously plays a role in regulatory, it plays a role in commercialization, but but where else does it kind of play a role and, and how do you think about this? Yep. Um, easy answer is it's risk management. It's it's interwoven to risk management. Let me let me build on that a little bit more. Um, so so human factors as it's codified in this in this industry um, is all about use related safety um, and so so you're thinking about it early on right so i'll give you an example so i worked in med device for 20 plus years at this point and you know early on you, you would never think twice about you were you, you were always doing your dfmeas you're always doing your pfmeas i was thinking about what can go wrong in the design i was thinking about what could go wrong in the process Human factors is just thinking about what can go wrong in use, right? Sometimes it happened in what was called an AFMEA, in some cases an applications FMEA, um, but it's um, it's just a little bit more systematized than kind of that ad hoc approach. Um, and so it's starting from the beginning of understanding, I mean, this is back VOC timeframe, right? <laughs> understanding who are my users, where are they using this product, right? Um, and starting at that point, I can start just with risk management. I can start to understand where the hazards going to be with this product. Am I delivering energy? Okay, I have energy hazards. Am I conveying information that I need to make a decision of? I have information hazards, right? Um, and then isolating the ones that can be affected by use. So if someone misinterprets information, 
can it lead to high severity harm, right? Or mm -hmm. serious harm. If, um, uh, CGM example, right? If they misinterpret the information, then they make a wrong decision on their insulin. That's pretty serious, right? Um, and so I know going in that I have some use related risks associated with that. And so then it's just, as I further develop that interface, continuing to update those assessments <laughs> of risk and uh, making sure that I'm getting that, that product in front of users so that I can evaluate how am I informing the users along the way and using that to drive your interface design. So it, it's just, it's, it's the, pro, you know, your classic design 101, I think, kind of process of iterative design, design, build, test, right? Um, and it's just making sure that you're keeping a use-focused lens through each of those loops. Mm -hmm. I have a theory. I don't know if it's real or not, but <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me dive into this about why this, why, why we, why do these questions come up in human factors? But again, no one's asking about, well, why do we have to worry about process failure modes, right? You don't necessarily mm -hmm. hear that question. Um, I think because the design controls came out, what, 96, somewhere around that time frame, um, and it drove that systematic review of how we structure um, product development from that design control lens, right? Um, so for the FDA interface with, with me, if I'm working on a design control product, my picture of FDA are the audits, right? The inspections, the am I conforming to my quality management system? Human factors was kind of built in there. It was mentioned in the preamble to that, but it wasn't really driven um, forward from that um, until 2010 to 2015, the Office of Device Evaluation started asking for it. So they're asking for it. They're hitting the regulatory folks creating submissions. It's a whole different part of the FDA, right? Mm -hmm. They're integrating better now, but but um, it's, it's a different focus. Um, and so now I think like that human factors focus the pressure for that came in from the regulatory standpoint, from the pre-market submission standpoint, rather than the design controls. Um, and so I, I think that might be part of why people are like, oh, why, what's this new thing? Well, it's, it's not a new thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's just um, a focus area that we might have not been looking at as closely as we could have. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, and, you know, theories are theories, right? So this is, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, it makes a lot more, it makes a lot of sense. Um, is there anything else on the human factors piece? Um, that's, that's, that's related to the digital health, uh, software as a medical device piece that you wanted to touch on that we haven't yet touched on. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'm seeing in the digital health space, um, mm -hmm. And I'm encouraged by this because I feel so strongly about the work that I do because I, I think it truly helps patients mm -hmm. and, and makes products safer and more effective. Um, but within the digital health space, I'm seeing m much more consistency in the request and review of HF data within the agency, so for U.S. Mm -hmm. products. Um, and I think part of that might just be that those those processes were, were built more recently. Um, mm -hmm. But you're, you're seeing it in special controls on some 510Ks in the digital health landscape. Um, and I'm seeing it much more consistently in pre-market reviews as well. And so um, making sure that those questions are addressed. And sometimes it can be difficult in the digital health space because you're thinking, well, it's just software. How can that hurt someone? Um, <laughs> it gets back to those informational hazards, right? Um, is what, what behavior, what benefit is my product driving and what's the risk of not receiving that benefit right mm -hmm. um 
and so so just making sure that 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 is considered and evaluated so yeah okay very good um i do want to cover a little bit on the enable injections piece while while you were there so for those who are in ohio most people know who enable injections are i mean it's a huge success um in Mm -hmm. in terms of a a small company that's that's um i forget the last time i looked i want to say they've raised like a total of 300 some million dollars or something like that. Um, I'd have to, I'd have to look quickly in the, in the background, but um, regardless, can you just kind of give, oh yeah, see in January of 2022, they closed 215 million. Um, And so, you know, just curious from, from your side, can you give a background on who is Enable Injections? But then also what I'd like to get is, what were some of your lessons learned from being there um, and what you kind of took from that experience there of human factors? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not there anymore, so I can't speak for right. them, but yep. um, I, I could tell you what I, what I know from, from their website and from, from having worked more closely with them. Um, so it's an exciting approach to an on-body injector. It's an exciting approach to a current problem that doesn't have a lot of solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so more and more um, monoclonal antibodies and drugs and biologics uh, need to be or can be delivered subcutaneously now. Um, the pharmacy, pharmaceutical groups are coming up with these formulations for that. This prevents maybe like going into the hospital every three weeks for an infusion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is near and dear to my heart because my mother had to do that every three weeks for mm. most of her life. Um, oh my gosh. And so, you know, we, we got to know everybody at the infusion center yeah, <laughs> there right. all the time. So, um, but the stress that that put on her, she was immune compromised Okay. to now go into another place, right. And be potentially exposed. Um, you know, it was always a concern. So, mm-hmm. uh, so at any rate, so, so there is, um, more and more evolution in the pharmaceutical space for this. Um, the need is on now the device space. How do you deliver? Um, these volumes, they're too large for an injection. Um, but how do you deliver them in, in a way that works well for patients? Um, that uh, another issue with drugs is the, the container closure that that drug is packaged in. Um, if you just change the package, the, the, if I take it from a vial and put it into something else, I now have all sorts of questions, right, around um, biocompatibility and, and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, and so if I'm now looking at multiple devices, I have to evaluate that for all devices. So um, so what what Enable does is it's, it's a way to um, take that drug from the vial and deliver it um, on body um, as an infusion. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and it's been built with a, a user-centric perspective from all along. Yeah. So, um, so it's exciting to see. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, um, while you were there, how long were you there for? Um, I was there for about two and a half years. Two, two okay. and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what were some of those things that you kind of took from, I mean, every step of the way, right. I mean, like we, we talk about this at project med tech, right. Of like, it's, it's, you started a consulting company, so I'm sure you look at this very similarly, but it's like, wh- why is a, a startup going to choose project med tech, right? Um, and it's it's for our experiences and our team, right? Uh, we're consultants, right? So for you, 
you know, I'm, I'm guessing every step of the way from your different experiences, you take a, oh, okay, this is a learning. This is, this is something I file away in that, that vault and I can pull <laughs> out when I need it. So yep. what were some of those things that you took away from your time there? Um, quite a bit. And, and I think a lot of it mm -hmm. is in general, um, I think a lot of it is, is more, more general than, than specific to enable, but um, some of the challenges in, in the spaces as you're, say, bringing up a new technology that's a drug delivery device is you have the expertise on the drug delivery side, um, but you're also delivering a pharmaceutical. So you need to have all of the expertise on the pharmaceutical side as well, at least mm -hmm. the part that applies to you. So as a combination product in the U.S., you need to comply with both sets of regulations, right? Um, that's not a common, that's not a, you know, that's something that they've, they've been doing. The, the challenge in doing that, though, and I've seen this across my career, is the, the languages are close enough between pharma and med device that, that you can think you're speaking the same language. <laughs> but there's some subtle differences um, in the language and the regulations um, that sometimes causes some confusion, right? Yeah. And, um, uh, and so working through that and understanding an efficient way to drive both pharmaceutical product development and med device product development is an extra factor to consider um, for startups working in that combination product space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. that if you're pure med device, you <laughs> right. don't necessarily have to worry about. Um, yeah. So uh, so it's, it's interesting. So for, for example, yeah. on a combination product, if I have, I have all of my risks associated with my device, what can go wrong? Um, what are the risks associated with that? But it's not until I partner that with a drug that I actually have an indication. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if I have um, a dose accuracy profile for one drug, that might be fine for like an insulin. Maybe not because that's got a super mm -hmm. tight therapeutic window. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so you have to bring in that indication of that drug and then think about risks as, a, as that combination product. So it adds another layer of uh, complexity um, when you're you know, you know, thinking through how, how to get that product developed manufactured and on the market yeah yeah I, I i like that a lot i like also the difference between pharma and device right so i um after i left namsa i went to covance which was acquired by labcor and mm -hmm. um you know they do pharma and device and um the device people always felt offended me myself included <laughs> uh by the pharma folks because there's just different terminology there um and and they behave differently e each kind of product development there's similarities but there's also very big differences and mm -hmm. there's nothing worse than when a pharma person is like so are they in a phase three trial and you're like no 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 we do pilots and we do pivotal <laughs> studies in device like yep. please you know get it right just try yeah <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, so anyways, I'm glad you brought that up. But but yeah. listen, um, uh, Shannon, I really appreciate your time here. This has been awesome. Um, uh, the, the background on and, and kind of the evolution of human factors um, and, and the explanations really helps. I hopefully helps the guests kind of figure out that this isn't anything new or novel. It's mm -hmm. always been there. It's just the FDA looking at it more now. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, but, but I think but the actually, other big thing is sometimes yeah. because of its nature, it's, it's qualitative in nature. It's not quantitative, right. Mm -hmm. Cause I'm assessing human performance. Um, 
people can get frustrated by it or they think, oh, what, what can that user do? The user can do anything. And it, comes, mm -hmm. it can become overwhelming thinking of it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think just the thing I drive home is if folks aren't familiar with it, is that it is a systematic way to think about risk associated with use. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not, um, you know, just kind of pontificating on everything that can go wrong. It's, right. it's a systematic way to walk through um, yeah. what to focus in on. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. To look at it. Yeah. Um, actually, and before we wrap up, I had a quick mm -hmm. question. Um, Agilis. Uh, so, so they'll, we'll have a link to the website in the show notes, but, um, where'd you get the name from? Agilis, <laughs> Agilis, it, it came, it was an existing, um, an existing organization focused on instructional system design. Uh -huh. Um, and, but, uh, but I like the agility aspect of it. Yeah. Personally. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if there was a story behind it or not. Yeah. Um, cool. All right, Shannon. Well, I appreciate your time. Hang on for one minute. We'll chat offline again for people listening in website. Um, uh, Shannon's LinkedIn uh, will also be in the show notes. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. But uh, yeah, Shannon, thanks so much for your time again. Awesome. Thank you. Ray. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.